welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 8 and Episode 7, entitled Jesus Sends Out the 72. We're going to be studying from Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 24. During the course of um, this series and the uh, last series, we've been using a lot of material from Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel and seeing how they fit together in terms of the overall story. It's Luke who particularly explains most clearly uh, of the Gospels the uh, transition that takes place in series 7 when Jesus ends his ministry in Galilee and takes his disciples away to a town called Caesarea Philippi in another province to the northeast of Galilee uh, talks to them about his identity, about the future foundation of the church, and then reveals to them that he is now heading south to Jerusalem. Luke makes this very clear and uh, helps us to understand that a major change has taken place. Meanwhile, John focuses on events in Jerusalem and adds to the narrative and story of the other Gospels by telling us things that aren't in those Gospels, and he tells us of a number of major visits to Jerusalem. We have just spent some time in the last few episodes looking at John's uh, description of Jesus' third visit to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, as described in John chapters 7, 8, 9 and 10. We're now returning to Luke's narrative and we're going to see more about what happens when Jesus begins to head south, although he, he made a very brief visit to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and he'll do that again, make a very brief visit to Jerusalem uh, and come away again. Essentially what he's doing is he's moving around the central and southern parts of the country and heading towards Jerusalem for a final visit in which he will deliberately provoke a confrontation with the religious authorities, as we'll see later on. And this is the perspective that Luke has in mind. He's already told us very clearly in Luke 9.51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So in the passage just before the one that we're studying, Luke makes it very clear that Jesus is now on the road. It's important just to reflect a little bit on the geography of the country again, and I've mentioned this on a number of occasions in different episodes, but it's important to think that there are essentially three main geographical areas and provinces in the main part of the country, and those are Galilee to the north, Samaria in the centre, and Judea in the south, with the capital city Jerusalem situated in Judea. We know that Jesus has spent most of his time in Galilee to the north and people have flocked to see him from all over the country and beyond. We've described that on quite a number of occasions as we've gone through the narrative. But now we see Jesus consciously leaving Galilee and he's not going to be returning to Galilee. Uh, he's going to be heading south and traveling through all these different districts where he rarely went and had only been seen very occasionally and fleetingly as he passed through. Now something different was going to happen. 
And the passage today is extremely enlightening because it helps us to understand what Jesus is doing in these weeks and months as he's traveling steadily southwards and he's visiting all sorts of different places that he hasn't visited before or maybe he's just passed through very briefly. We have an account of him passing through Samaria briefly in John chapter 4 in his early ministry uh, when he met the Samaritan woman at the side of the road and briefly stayed there um, in a Samaritan community. But that was just a very brief moment in his ministry. Uh, we have very little information about how much time Jesus had spent in the southern province of Judea. So he now wanted to bring his message to Samaria and Judea and some of the other surrounding areas on the eastern side of the River Jordan, for example. Uh, he wanted to bring his message in the same way that his message had come to the northern province of Galilee, which had really been saturated with um, his presence and also with the preaching of his 12 disciples or apostles who, as recorded in Luke 9 and Matthew 10, had been sent out in pairs all the way through Galilee. And they'd been told um, to go to the Jewish communities in Galilee and not go any further than that when they'd spent that time preaching. Now something different happens and I want us to see clearly how different and how strategic this is. The first verse, Luke 10 verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So here's a second attempt to get his message out beyond just his personal presence. He'd sent the 12 out in Galilee. Now he's increased the number dramatically. He's increased the number to 72, divided them into pairs and sent them out to go to every place, every town and place where he was about to go. So he has 36 teams on the road proclaiming his message, which we'll discuss more in a moment, in all the places he was about to go. He was going to go through Samaria. He was going to go through Judea. He was basically going to go to lots of different places in the centre and south of the country. And he had 36 teams operating with him to get the message out. This is essentially a national wake-up call to all the people in the country concerning Jesus's messianic claims. He's alerting the whole country to his presence, his identity, and he's preparing them for the fact that very shortly, in a few months' time, he will die, be raised again from the dead, and then the gospel message will be fully preached by the apostles from Jerusalem and beyond. So this is a very strategic move that Jesus is making here. That's often overlooked when people interpret this passage. But let's now look at the things that he says to these 72. And by the way, these 72 would include the 12 and another 60 people. We don't know who they are, 
the early church um, wrote up in their early histories uh, that some of the the, the well-known people in the early church were probably in the 72. But we don't know the names of any of them for certain. Let's now read verses 2 to 16. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst, amongst wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, would you be lifted up to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. These instructions are similar to the instructions given to the twelve as recorded in Matthew chapter 10, which we've studied in an earlier episode. This is not surprising. Uh, it's important to say again that Jesus often repeated his teaching, his parables, his teaching, his ethical teaching, his practical instructions get repeated in different contexts for the obvious reason that similar things are taking place or similar truths are being explained to different people. But let's look at them afresh from the point of view of the 72. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Again, a similar saying appears um, in Matthew 9 and 10 in that narrative. The harvest is plentiful. Yes, there are many people who want to believe and are open to believe the truth if they hear the message. But there are never enough workers. There are never enough people to convey the Christian message, to share their story, to um, preach the message to give out literature to give out um, media uh, information about the Christian message to give books to pray for people but he says don't take a lot of baggage travel light and don't get delayed don't greet people along the road the context of this needs to be explained a greeting to many people in the western world is just saying Hello, how are you? As you walk along the road, 
and the other person says, fine, how are you? End of greeting. No, a Middle Eastern greeting at that time was a much more substantial, time-consuming, uh, embracing each other, asking polite questions about your family, asking polite questions about where you're going and what you may need. So greeting people along the road could take a lot of time. That was the problem. Don't get delayed. Stick to the task. Find a welcoming home in a town or village. And trust God for your provision. Eat what's put in front of you. Look for a home that will receive you. Don't go from home to home. That's going to take a lot of time. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Heal the sick. And then pronounce warnings to those towns which refuse to receive you. And there would have been some such towns. We've already seen a Samaritan town uh, in the previous passage. Uh, Mark, uh, Luke 9, 51 um, to 56. We see uh, a Samaritan town that refuses to receive Jesus. So it, there will be rejection along the way. And there'll be a judgment on those places that reject the kingdom. A judgment like on the towns of Galilee, Corazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum, which were given masses of opportunity to hear the gospel. Capernaum is where Jesus was based. Bethsaida and Corazin were, were small towns uh, within just a few kilometres of Capernaum where Jesus visited regularly. These three places are referred to uh, in a similar saying in Matthew 11, but Jesus reiterated, reiterates it here in Luke 10 by saying, you know, those places which had so much opportunity still didn't receive the full message that the kingdom had come and that Jesus was the Messiah. Be aware of the severity of that punishment that awaits those who reject the gospel when it has been offered to them. So these are very practical instructions. They imply that Jesus is empowering uh, the 72 uh, to do miracles. They're going to heal the sick. Now that's a, that's a remarkable statement. So these must be committed disciples. These must be people who knew quite a lot about Jesus' ministry. And these would be people who had been in the broader group of disciples from which the 12 had been drawn and had become apostles. You remember that when the 12 were appointed, um, they were 12 amongst a much wider group of disciples. And that wider group of disciples is represented here. The interesting thing about this is it tells us how many people were traveling with Jesus along the road because he was now out of Galilee. He's not near his home. He's not near the homes of many of his early disciples who would have lived in Galilee. They are on the road. So it appears that a large number of people are actually traveling with him. But rather than just traveling as a crowd with him, he's sent them out on a mission. And wherever he goes, he wants them to go ahead along the journey. Let's look at verses 17 to 20 which describes what happens when the 72 returned we don't hear any direct accounts of what happens as they traveled around but we do see a little glimpse of this when they returned 
after a, presumably after a designated time that Jesus had given them and a designated task that he'd given them. They returned back to him and they had a brief discussion with him as recounted here in this passage. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus had commanded these 72 to heal the sick. But within that command and within the methodology of Jesus was also the possibility that they would drive out evil spirits, which were sometimes the cause of sickness. They found this incredibly exciting when they saw the power of God coming through their prayers for individual people. It was a thrilling experience. They could hardly believe that what they'd seen Jesus do, they were beginning to do themselves in some measure. It was an exhilarating moment. And Jesus speaks here about the fact that they have been given authority over the powers of darkness. This is an important consideration for the authority of Christians. This is not a simplistic authority. The authority comes through the proclamation of the gospel. That is the source of the authority to overcome darkness. Because as the gospel is preached and as people respond to the gospel, so the control of evil that sometimes exists in people's lives is challenged and overturned. And Jesus makes this enigmatic statement here, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Interpreters have uh, given several different possible ways of understanding this particular statement. The most likely explanation of it is this is a prophetic statement. Jesus is looking ahead into the future because, as Paul teaches very clearly in Ephesians 6, um, Satan's power, although greatly diminished by Jesus dying on the cross, still operates in this world. He's described as the prince of the power of the air. But in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 and the passage surrounding it, John sees in uh, his uh, prophetic revelation in that book uh, a time when Satan is thrown right down to the earth. And maybe Jesus is um, an anticipating this event that because as it's described in the book of Revelation, it appears to be um, a future event and an event that has a very short period of time of him being on the earth. There are different ways of interpreting this verse, but I prefer to connect it with Revelation 12 verse 9 and to see this as a prediction of the final defeat of Satan um, at the end of the age. And I think Jesus is anticipating this by thinking that the, what the disciples, these 72, are beginning now is going to continue until it is completed. 
by that final and ultimate uh, destruction of Satan's power. However, the point of this section is something different. It's that we should rejoice in our salvation, not in our power or authority as believers. It's our salvation that matters most. It's a good thing when evil power is overcome in individual lives, in communities, or even in nations. If we see a change, a spiritual change, it is absolutely wonderful to see. But by far the most important thing to celebrate is the reality of salvation and the eternal security of believers. Then Jesus prays. And we get a glimpse into some of his thoughts and his prayers. Verses 21 and 22. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I think it's wonderful to see Jesus' attitude described as joyful, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. That's one of the most beautiful descriptions um, of Jesus um, that we ever get in the Gospels. Full of joy through the Holy Spirit. What was he joyful about? He was joyful about working in harmony with his Father and seeing the productivity and the results and the outcomes of that beautiful harmony between Father and Son. The Father committed things to the Son and revealed things to the Son. And the Son enacted what the Father revealed to him. And, and the Son, Jesus, has enacted a next step on the journey by appointing the 72 and sending them on the mission. And then he sees the fruitfulness and the result of that. And he's joyful at working under the leadership of his Father. And he's joyful at seeing the coming of the kingdom of God, seeing people respond. It's a wonderful joy for Jesus. And so he makes a final statement to his disciples, verses 23 and 24. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Essentially saying they're a privileged generation. Jews had spent hundreds of years in painful waiting and anticipation of the coming of the kingdom of God and the coming of their Messiah. And prophets in the Old Testament period had looked into the future, had anticipated the future, had felt something of what the future would be, had predicted something of the future. But the things they predicted, they never actually saw in their own experience. Many Old Testament prophets and kings wanted to see the time when the Messiah would come, but 
they did not see it. It was that generation, the generation of Jesus, who saw the kingdom of God coming. And Jesus says, they are privileged, as indeed they were. This is a very interesting passage with some very interesting implications. So in my reflections, as we come to the end of this study, I want to just bring you a few thoughts. First of all, the Christian mission is ongoing. And there is an ever-present need for labourers in the harvest, to use the analogy that Jesus uses. And he asks us to pray. Pray that people will be sent out from the church into the community. Evangelists, missionaries, church planters, individual Christians into their communities informally. We should be praying for this to happen. And as we pray, the Holy Spirit stirs up the church to consider its responsibilities in mission and not just to settle down into being an inward-looking and settled community. This is a constant challenge for the church. But labourers are needed and labourers should be prayed for. And we do have to go to people to tell them about Jesus and his kingdom. There's an actual going that is needed. This might be you going to your neighbour on your street. This might be you going to another country. This might be you going into your office or your workplace or your farm or your school. But there is an actual going. There is a sense of being sent. And the more that Christians feel that they are sent into their communities, the stronger their mission will be. Another thing that we can learn from this passage is that Jesus had a coherent strategy of evangelism. This is rarely discussed when the Gospels are um, taught. He had a very clear strategy in Galilee. He had three tours travelling around Galilee, which I've described between series three and series six in some detail. He had a very clear strategy in appointing 12 apostles, training them, and then sending them two by two around Galilee. That was a very clear plan. And here's another step in his strategy. This is a coherent, planned strategy to reach Samaria and Judea and the surrounding areas and to get the message of the coming kingdom of God and the Messiahship of Jesus out to as many people as possible in the whole country by means of sending out 36 teams of people to be on the road who were not going to stop and waste time they were going to get on with the work and get the proclamation done. There was a coherent, planned mission strategy. Every church, every Christian community, every family of churches or network of churches or group of local churches needs to have a coherent, planned strategy. Mission doesn't happen by accident. The Holy Spirit can lead individuals and do remarkable miracles that are surprising. And that happens all the time. It happened in the book of Acts. But it is for leadership particularly to see what the Spirit is doing, how the Spirit is leading, and form a strategy around it in order to enhance the mission 
of the church. It's wonderful to know also in terms of our understanding of spiritual warfare that the primary means of winning the spiritual battle is, apart from living lives of integrity as Christians, is to preach the gospel, share faith, win people for Christ. That is the primary means of winning the battle. And enemy spiritual forces will be defeated in that process. I love the joy that Jesus had seeing God's purposes fulfilled. And there's nothing more joyful for the committed Christian disciple to see God's purposes fulfilled in our generation through the mission spreading and the church growing. We should be completely committed to this process in our individual lives, in our church communities, and I encourage you to refocus on that priority and ask yourself the question, what does it mean for me here and now, where I live, in my community and in my church? Let's learn from the wonderful truths that we find in this amazing passage and others like it. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, which we studied earlier on, let's learn from these passages and let's recommit ourselves to the wonderful mission of the church. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.